Hello again. Welcome to USH Med Student. Today's podcast will be about clozapine. We're going to change things up just a little bit. I've got three guests here with me today. How about if you guys introduce yourself, starting with Peter. Um, hey, this is Peter Huang. Uh, once again, I'm a fourth-year medical student at Rocky Vista, and um, today I will be the interviewer. Yeah, kind of a turn of events. We'll see how this goes. Uh, I'm Taylor Sarine. I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista. My name is Dylan Smith. I'm also a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. All right, so we've already done this with Peter, uh, but what are you guys planning on going into? What are, what are your plans when you're done with your third year and fourth year? What does residency look like? Yeah, kind of briefly, where are you headed? Um, at the moment, I'm pretty sure I'm going into internal medicine and toying with the idea of a fellowship into critical care afterwards, but we'll see what happens. Very cool. My plans are to go into emergency medicine, so getting ready to apply for that here this next fall. Very cool, guys. Uh, you may end up seeing something like this along the way, especially in a critical care setting, I think. So, Peter, what have you yeah, got today? Without further ado, so today's um, topic is clozapine, um, which, you know, admittedly is relatively low yield as far as uh, step two goes and um, kind of what we're expecting to know as medical students, but in the context of this rotation in psychiatry in general, it's extremely high yield and um, really a remarkable drug for, for a number of reasons. So um, kind of the goal today is to give you kind of a basic overview and what it is to that's important to understand about clozapine and then kind of leaning on Dr. Roundy's you know, decades of experience with this drug. Um, some of his kind of pearls and pitfalls from working with it. Sounds good, although uh, I, I'm not sure I've had decades of experience. <laughs> I'm not quite that old yet. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so anyways, uh, just for a helpful overview of clozapine, um, kind of the method, uh, mechanism of action that is, um, it is a partial dopamine antagonist, as um, most of the antipsychotics are. Um, but what's kind of remarkable about it um, and kind of gets into some of its side effect profiles um, is that it also has a lot of action at the serotonin receptors as partial agonists, uh, muscarinic antagonistic properties as well as histamine, and then alpha-1 antagonistic properties. So um, needless to say, it has a ton of interactions and um, we're going to kind of go into some of the reasons why um, you see certain things with clozapine. Um, as far as the history of the medication, my understanding, it's actually been around for a long time. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, we haven't found a drug that tr quite treats schizophrenia as effectively as clozapine. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Dr. Randy? Yeah, so, so this is a really interesting molecule, right? I, I think I read once somewhere that it's been around since the 1950s. And uh, I don't think it had an FDA approval in the United States until somewhere in the 80s or maybe 90s. And then there were these uh, deaths associated with it. We'll probably talk about that in a little bit. And yet it's such an effective medication compared to everything else that we've made the decision to find ways to use it and keep it as safe as possible as uh, a tool to help treat schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Right, so kind of getting into the indications, as far as official FDA indications for the medication, as far as I understand, it's really just schizophrenia treatment resistance is kind of the classic thing that we think about. And then especially in populations where suicidality or aggression is particularly a concern, um, clozapine is quite effective. Um, can you speak to um, any other indications or as far as um, 
kind of at what point do we consider using clozapine um, in schizophrenia? So this is a great question, right? This, this is um, something that comes up quite a bit. The NNT for clozapine is so much better than everything else that uh, it, it's hard to know when to use this drug, right? It, it comes with some baggage, and yet it's the molecule that, according to the Intercept study, that's I-N-T-E-R-S-E-P-T, that was with Herbert Meltzer, um, this is the drug that slows down suicide, right? This is the drug that looks like in a couple of other follow-up uh, papers that have been published, extends lifespans. Mm -hmm. So so there's a part of me that always says, why wouldn't you start there first? There are a few authors that occasionally make that case. Generally speaking, though, we've waited until there have been failures of two other medications before we start clozapine. Now, when I first started, we had uh, a couple of second-generation antipsychotics and a bunch of first-generation antipsychotics. And so I think the tradition at the time was fail a first generation and an anti uh, and a second generation antipsychotic and then start clozapine. I, I'm not sure that we think about it the same way with so many choices now, but it it really is a life changing drug, and I think there would be many authors that say we think of it too late rather than too soon in most cases. Mm -hmm, right. I just kind of remember your mantra that uh, clozapine uh, changes lives. Um, you know, you can see that certainly within the patient population here at the state hospital where, um, you know, this is the most severe case of schizophrenia and um, clozapine is really the only thing that can make meaningful change. So it's absolutely true. Yeah, at any given time, about a third of the people that I treat are on clozapine, perhaps even half. And that's, that's very interesting continue, considering that there are 20 or so competitors in the market. Uh, that one medication in this setting can so, so absolutely dominate. Right, mm -hmm. right. so um, kind of getting back to clozapine, I would say maybe it's infamous reputation um, kind of regarding some of the adverse drug reactions, which um, are many. Um, I think it's important to note when we're thinking about clozapine, certainly from a medical student and uh, soon-to-be resident perspective, is to think of the um, five black box warnings that accompany it, um, those being uh, neutropenia or acranulocytosis, uh, myocarditis or cardiomyopathy, um, increased mortality in the elderly, especially with dementia. And, and just to back up very, this is not, in my mind, clearly associated with treating people who have schizophrenia and develop dementia. This was something associated with a class warning that all antipsychotics received and seems to be related to probably um, uh, respiratory events and cardiovascular events. Um, so, so this isn't different than any of the other members in the class. Gotcha. And then fourth being um, increased risk for seizure, and then finally uh, orthostatic hypotension or syncopal episodes. Um, you know, there's. Going to interrupt yeah. here for just a second. Um, Dylan or Taylor. Peter mentioned the pharmacology of this molecule a, a few minutes ago. To what do we attribute that orthostasis? Any ideas? Alpha-1 antagonism? Yeah, very, very good. So uh, it's a big deal. Falls are a huge deal in hospitals. You'll see that during your fourth year, um, the risks associated with patients standing up in their beds and then falling down and breaking something. 
Um, those, are, those are big events, and alpha-1 antagonism is often a, a factor in that. Clozapine's not alone in alpha-1 antagonism amongst the antipsychotics, but it's, it's a big player in this medication. Right, and some of the other uh, notable significant adverse drug reactions uh, would be um, the metabolic syndrome effect, so increased weight gain, uh, lipid profile, um, and insulin resistance as well. Um, a lot of things that we see here at the state hospital that I've noted personally are um, drooling and aneurysis. Um, and amongst those, there's, uh, you know, I'm sure the list goes on and on. Dr. Rodney, can you kind of speak to some of the other common adverse drug reactions that you see? Um, yeah, actually, I think you picked out the, the really common ones, aneurysis and, and drooling, and those are variably easy to manage. Some patients, you simply can't stop the drooling, and some patients, you simply can't stop the aneurysis. I tend to use DDAVP to address aneurysis, and I tend to use um, sublingual atropine for drooling. Uh, apparently, there's been some use of uh, Botox for mm -hmm. that, which is uh, fascinating to me. I think that might be one of the better solutions that I could find. And then one of the solutions that I'm very hesitant about is use of anticholinergic medications mm -hmm. to slow that down, systemic ones, because of the cognitive effects of those medications. But those are also options. Sure. Um, in some of the... I guess discussion um, includes some of the advantages in its adverse drug reaction profile, um, such as uh, lower uh, extrapyramidal symptoms associated with clozapine. Um, can you speak to that at all? You know, the, the whole world of EPS and uh, tardive dyskinesia seems to have been turned on its head with the KD trial a few years ago. I can tell you that when I do have a patient that has uh, EPS, or tardive dyskinesia um, and takes clozapine, I'm always disappointed because th then I'm stuck with these challenges. How, how do I, what, what do I do now, right? Because we tend to think of this as the medication that you use when those are problems. And, and of course, there are solutions for that as well. Mm -hmm. And so some of the uh, kind of technical aspects of uh, using clozapine, um, things to consider is uh, monitoring. Um, kind of, as we mentioned, we have these really serious adverse drug reactions that uh, do happen. Um, so as far as some of the kind of nitty-gritty things as far as guidelines go, um, as far as blood draw monitoring for uh, neutropenia and agranulocytosis, uh, the recommendation is uh, weekly for six months, uh, every other week for the following six months, and then uh, every four weeks after that. Um, some of the things we look for are looking at um, absolute uh, neutrophil counts and uh, neutropenia as we define it. Um, from our understanding is uh, less than 1,500. And um, at that point, um, that's not really necessarily grounds for cessation of clozapine, but more uh, close monitoring to make sure that that doesn't uh, worsen. Um, as far as guidelines go, anything from 500 to 999, they recommend interrupting treatments and monitoring um, very closely until uh, absolute neutrophil counts rise above 1,000, then you can uh, re-begin clozapine. Um, kind of the deal breaker there is uh, under 500 that I've seen quoted mostly. Um, that's when you uh, say, you know, we need to stop this. And um, from my understanding, patients then will go on a non-rechallenge registry list. Um, and 
wondering if that's kind of your experience with this, Dr. Andy. Yeah, so this all changed a few years ago. Um, generally, yes, and partially no, is my understanding. Mm -hmm. So you and I talked in the last podcast about the REMS programs, I think. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a REMS program for clozapine. And there's actually a little bit more room to rechallenge a patient now than there was in the past. And uh, if you go into the literature, you'll find patients who simply cannot function. The decision is made to uh, use clozapine despite those risks because the quality of life or the aggression or the suicidality is so high that the risk-benefit uh, ratios change. And in those cases, there have been authors who have been able to rechallenge. Without difficulty, there have been authors that have been rechallenged with difficulty. Quite often, there's some sort of backup mechanism to protect a patient. Uh, in some cases, it's been filgastrum or GCFS, and uh, at certain trigger points, those protocols are initiated to try and keep people healthy. Um, so, so there's there are ways to use clozapine even after a granulocytosis, and even after. Um, you've hit that no rechallenge status, but that that's a big step. You have mm -hmm. to have a lot of things in place to be able to feel safe enough to go forward. And even then, uh, I don't think you feel entirely safe. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and kind of just to read it here, um, as far as um, some of the main indications for complete cessation of the medication, as mentioned, agranulocytosis, and then um, myocarditis. Uh, I was wondering kind of if you could speak to your experience with seeing clozapine-induced myocarditis or cardiomyopathy? So this is something we haven't seen as much here. And uh, we have, of course, this protocol that's built in within the REMS program to check the blood draws, the CBC, again, weekly for six months, every other week, second six months, monthly from then after. Um, we have these protocols for the, the changes in uh, white cell counts granulocytes. Um, and, and these protocols are built around the notion that, generally speaking, agran happens early in treatment, quite often in the first couple of months. Um, but the cardio, myocarditis and the cardiomyopathy seem to be a little bit different beasts. We're not sure yet what to do as a hospital, whether we should have some sort of protocol that we have built in for um, monitoring troponins or not, um, I, I guess the answer to your question is I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Still kind of working that one out. Yeah, sure. And as far as guidelines go, you know, they do recommend uh, routine monitoring as far as uh, protocolized timing of it. Um, not super well defined, but things to look for would be um, ESR um, and acetate, uh, CRP, and then troponins, of course. Um, and, you know, as far as proposed mechanisms for it, I think our best guess at this point is in hypersensitivity reaction. So another thing you can look at is uh, eosinophil count. Yeah. That, that eosinophil count is kind of a weird animal, too. I don't know that it, it I wish it were more sensitive, I think is what mm -hmm. I wish I knew. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, and then kind of getting more into the um, neutropenic and acranocytosis effect of clozapine. Um, from what I understand, the incidence is uh, anywhere between 0.8 to 1%. And as Dr. Roundy mentioned, uh, peak incidence happens anywhere from 16 to 18 weeks typically, so within the first couple months of therapy. 
Um, as far as mechanisms, from what I understand, there's some theories, but we don't exactly know exactly why clozapine causes this. Yeah, I, I, I think the first um, real wake-up call about the risks came with uh, a Finnish population. I think there were a whole bunch of deaths that happened in Finland, and I think that was part of how uh, uh, the original authors that have identified some of the genetic mechanisms have started to try and tackle the genetic component of this. There do seem to be some uh, immune-related genes. Um, you and I have talked about this a little bit, mm -hmm. and these genes seem to um, maybe be unique create unique epitope uh, genetic responses that then go after granulocytes. The other option is uh, something along the lines of uh, free radical formation, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's some evidence that uh, some of the clozapine metabolites maybe are somewhat toxic to in the marrow, but you have to get up to higher blood levels, so it's, it's not a great explanation. And the rate of, of uh, the onset of agranulocytosis, or even neutropenia to agranulocytosis, seems to suggest there's probably more than one mechanism because some people kind of slowly uh, nudge into the area where you just kind of have to give up eventually. And other people, it seems to happen pretty quickly and there's not a lot you can do. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, and as you can imagine, this is a pretty scary side effect that um, we're very wary of. Um, is there anything that we can do to kind of prevent this or in patients that are particularly high risk or kind of getting close to that threshold of 500 for the absolute neutrophil count, um, things that we can do to, to prevent this. So, so generally at that point, by the time you hit 500, you've probably stopped clozapine unless you're desperate and you've already made the decision that there's a risk and you will stay with this no matter what. Um, when the white cell counts start to trend down, I tend to add lithium if I haven't already. Lithium seems to have a GCFS effect of sorts. How potent that is is not clear to me. Generally speaking, any patient that I have on lithium who starts having, or I'm sorry, any patient I have on clozapine who starts to have any difficulties with their cell counts, I really like to try and get them on lithium, not just for mood stability. Most of our patients, many of our patients here have exhibited manic episodes while psychotic, so schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. So lithium is a natural treatment in that case, but it also seems to be protective to the cell counts. The other things that I do is I add antioxidants. The one that I tend to add is N-acetylcysteine. It's very benign. Um, and so I'll, I'll add 1,200 milligrams twice a day to anybody whose white count is trending down. My feeling is that probably if there's an immune-mediated mechanism, it's really hard to keep that going. It's, it's really hard to maintain a white, white count up. So, so my guess is, and again, this isn't well defined in the data, my guess is that it's easier to maintain the other mechanisms, whatever they might be, uh, to maintain the white count up. But once it's an immune-related response, probably not. Mm -hmm. okay. And again, no, no data there, no mm -hmm. data there. Just the theories about um, free radical formation, toxicity to the marrow with those free radicals, as being one mechanism. The other mechanism widely talked about is an immune-related. And of course, there are a couple of genes that seem to be candidate genes for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this almost kind of begs the question, so um, you know, what do we do when a patient um, you know, functionally fails clozapine 
uh, therapy, but you know, we can't get them well. Essentially, it's the only drug that works for them, and despite uh, numerous other trials, uh, nothing quite does it. Um, I understand that you've done some work recently as far as developing almost a protocol to see if a patient uh, could reasonably be rechallenged on clozapine. So I've talked about this a little bit, right? And, and the first thing you have to decide is whether the risk and the benefits are worth proceeding. If you have somebody that is perpetually aggressive, remains frequently or constantly restrained, I think that's a time when you need to start considering the use of clozapine with some sort of compensatory mechanisms. I think probably if I had to restart clozapine, that was the only option. I would make sure that there was a free radical scavenger in place and lithium, and then have a rescue protocol where um, we've, we made decisions about how long would we continue to try and rescue, what point would we trigger GCFS use or filgastrum use um, along the continuum of the granulocyte um, level and uh, how, how long we'd try and, and ride that out. There's uh, one very compelling uh, case report I read that talked about a patient that had been rechallenged three times after having a granulocytosis, one time with uh, triggered GCFS slash filgastrum, one time without triggered and didn't need it for a long time, and then a third time with a triggered response. And I, I don't know that I have the order of those correct, but I was amazed to see that um, with support, and, and this is a patient that had done well for a while, then would have some sort of event where they would not be able to stay on their medications, probably because of illness, the way I understood the paper, and the illness got in the way of, of staying on the clozapine. And I've always been amazed that you can have patients who seem to have periods of time where they may not need that rescue, periods of time when they may need that rescue, and periods of time where they're simply covered and we don't know if they need the rescue. And, and it seemed to work. It seemed to keep this patient functional in the community and otherwise um, absolutely um, just so severely impaired that the risk-benefit was deemed to be favorable to using clozapine, which had you know, ostensibly nearly killed the person in the past. So mm -hmm. um, I, those are my thoughts, and that's kind of the very basic of how I would approach that. And again, this is something you don't do uh, randomly. This is something that would be fairly thought out and scary to do. Mm, yeah, definitely. I would add one other thing. I would probably do genetic testing, and if it was a patient that had any of the well-defined risk genes or risk alleles, I would not re-challenge. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, something I wanted to circle back to um, that we mentioned earlier about clozapine's effect on um, metabolic syndrome. Um, I know there's some interesting uh, evidence out there that, uh, you know, maybe clozapine isn't as harmful to cardiovascular outcomes as you might think with, um, you know, increased cholesterol, weight gain, and insulin resistance. So we talked about this uh, Medscape teaser that I got, I think, a couple of days ago. I think that might be what you're referring to. Mm -hmm. So not only do we have the uh, data about suicide and a couple of other papers that have come out over the years speaking about clozapine uh, seeming to extend lifespans compared to non-treatment. Um, there's now this uh, study that came out of Sweden, I think, 
and it looked over 20 years of data for all antipsychotics. And very interestingly, patients who are on their antipsychotics, antipsychotic medications, their all-cause mortality is less than those that are not being treated for their schizophrenia. And their cardiovascular uh, rate of death is lower than those that are not treated. So despite the cholesterol changes, despite the metabolic syndrome, it looks like our patients live longer when they're taking their medications for schizophrenia. And um, why that is is not as clear. Perhaps the patients that take their medications for um, schizophrenia are more likely to take their medications for their cardiovascular diseases, um, or perhaps they're well enough to take care of that. It's hard to know. Mm -hmm. So I think what I hear you saying is um, the study kind of shows that um, you know, despite the side effect profile associated with a lot of these antipsychotics, um, you know, not only do they uh, preserve quality of life, but in some instances, maybe even longevity or some kind of benefit. Yeah, it looks like there's growing data to that end, and, and that's kind of nice because um, you know, it's it's uh, I've heard somewhere do no harm. <laughs> Seems like I've yeah heard somebody say that, <laughs> and uh, so when you're at giving somebody medications that clearly appear to cause what are markers for harm, elevated cholesterol, elevated hemoglobin A1Cs, um, to actually have that still not necessarily harm the patient is kind of a nice thing in the, in the way that we traditionally think of a shortened lifespan. That's a, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll see if that data continues to be verified or if we find something that suggests that that's not accurate. We'll, we'll see what the data shows over time, I think. Well, any closing thoughts or any fun stories that you have, Dr. Randy? Um, right, let's, maybe if it's okay, let's see if either Dylan or Taylor have something they want to add first. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. I think we've discussed clozapine pretty well to this point. Do you, think, do you guys think you're ready for the shelf exam now? If there's a question on clozapine, yes, <laughs> super ready. <laughs> have you guys started doing any uh, prep exam questions yet? Yeah. And have you seen any questions about clozapine yet? Not yet, but I've only done maybe 10, 20 questions so yeah. far. So. Done a handful and haven't seen one, but it was a handful. So. I think there are some questions that show up, generally speaking. I'm sure there is. Generally speaking, I think the questions focus on uh, efficacy compared to the other antipsychotic medications movement disorder related or uh, side effects that are motor related maybe is a way to say that. So Parkinsonism, Mm -hmm. uh, tardive dyskinesia, akathisia, those kinds of questions. And generally speaking, we think that clozapine is less problematic for tardive dyskinesia than than the other medications. And then uh, the uh, risks of agranulocytosis. So those are the kinds of things that you need to know about probably for the shelf exam. Mm-hmm. And uh, amazing stories? No, all I know is that the data seems to be borne out here. Our patients don't tend to get as well with other medications frequently as they do with clozapine. Clozapine isn't the only option. Um, there are a number of patients that we can't consistently ensure that they will get clozapine, so we end up sometimes with long-acting injections, at other times, uh, sometimes clozapine is just not the right medication for other reasons, and sometimes other medications work better. Generally speaking, though, 
if I'm going to hope that somebody gets well, I'm going to use clozapine as the medication that's most likely to cause that. So it's a good medication. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you for your insight, Dr. Randy. Thanks, Peter. Good job. And Taylor and Dylan, uh, what you may not know is that you've got one of these ahead. Um, sort of the expectation over the last few months has become that you find an area of interest, that you develop uh, a good knowledge of it, and we have a talk about it and see if we can add something to the podcast list that students can listen to while they're bored to death driving. <laughs> so on that note, thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you.